0: This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Holy Heretics, the post-evangelical podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, Christian nationalism, sexuality, gender, spiritual abuse, faith deconstruction, and how to recover from evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, activists, and writers in our quest to find a freer faith. Listen wherever you get your podcast or check us out at sophiasociety.org slash podcast. The mind that was in Jesus, that mind is in me. Without me, life has no meaning. Why would God tell you what I'm thinking and tell you what I've said to my wife or my husband when you're not around? It's because I'm the pastor of the church and I need
1: to know. This is the only place where you can see truth. Hey, heathens, you're listening to the Deadly Faith Podcast, where religion and crime collide. I'm Lacey. And I'm Lola. And this shit is appalling. Hey, guys, welcome back to another spooky Halloween serial killer episode we're bringing at dun, you. Dun, dun. I, I, I hate to say I hope you're enjoying them. I hope you're learning a lot and I hope you're enjoying Lola and I presenting them in our slightly hilarious comedy from time to time. Oh, just slightly.
0: <gasps> just slightly. Credit where credit is due. You're pretty funny. Oh, Mm -hmm. shucks. I think you're pretty funny too. So (laughs) there's that. Thanks.
1: Okay. So we aren't going to waste much time. We're just going to jump into today's case because I have a lot to present to you guys. And I don't want to go over, you know, an hour and a half to two hours. So let's just get into this. Tell me about Dan Dan. (laughs) Dan Dan. Uh, Dan, not the man. So (laughs) Danny Lee Corwin is a serial killer that you probably do not know or you have probably never heard of because I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that has covered him on YouTube whenever I had my YouTube channel. And there is a book, and that's how I found out about this case called The Demon Next Door, written by Brian Burrow. And the reason that I found out about this case was for my sister, long story short, she mentioned that something that was going on in my life reminded me of, reminded her of this case. And she told me about the book. I listened to it and I was like, holy shit, because it is on Audible Audible sponsor us. Anyways, moving on. So before we jump in, I'm going to give you guys some trigger warnings today. Today's case is a lot. I will be upfront with you on this one. This is a lot, a lot, a lot. So there is sexual assault. There's rape, uh, victim shaming, murder, declining mental health, and schizophrenia. And the murder is very graphic. And we have to talk about the aspects of the murder. So it's going to get graphic. So please, if any of that is too much for you, come back, listen to another episode or maybe see you after the serial killers because honestly, all of the serial killers we're covering are pretty graphic and just a whole a hell of a lot. So anyways, moving on. So let's jump in. Danny Lee Corwin, he was born September 15th, 1958 in Garden Grove, California. His father worked in a lot of different factory type settings. And so this meant that his family moved around a lot. When Danny was a teen, his family ended up landing in Temple, Texas. So Texas is huge. So to give you kind of a roundabout area of this, where it's at, it is about an hour and a half-ish or an hour from College Station, and that's where A&M is. So he was in that vicinity. Uh, His family were members of the local Pentecostal church where his mom, Nancy, sang in the choir and where both his parents would help in the youth group. Many times his parents would actually oversee even the church lock-ins they were the family that was at church literally anytime the church doors were open. Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Wednesday afternoons, uh, or Wednesday evenings, and like anytime the church had an event, prayer meeting, potluck—what you name it, they're there. Oh, I miss potluck. How I could do. You say I do miss potlucks, man. I know. I'm sorry. I, I, They always had the best food because it was always the old ladies at the potlucks. Mm-hmm. They always had like
0: good homemade cooking. I just have to say this one thing about potluck at the Church of Christ I used to go to. There was this lady that would always make these huge cookies.
1: Mm.
0: By huge, I mean probably the size of my hand. I have a smallish hand, but like pretty much the size of your hand. And like the chocolate, it wasn't chocolate chips. It was chocolate chunks. Like (gasps) chunks. And then like sea salt on top. It was so good.
1: Damn. So good. Now my mouth's mouse watering. I know, same. <laughs> oh, now I'm going to have to bake my cookies <laughs> that I love so much. Oh my gosh. Oh. Well, <laughs> growing up, Danny was described as a normal kid. He was an average student who liked drawing, camping, and he was even in the Boy Scouts. But on the other hand, his classmates saw him as a weird kid. He was awkward around peers, like people his own age, but... He actually was able to connect and he wasn't as awkward around younger kids, which to me says like develop, emotional developmental delay of some sort if he's able to connect with younger kids, but not kids his own age. Due to Danny's father, his name is Phil, shuffling from job to job, it meant that Danny and them moved around a lot. And this made it even harder for Danny to make friends or maintain friendships. And so he ended up becoming a loner as he got older, especially into his teen years. Growing up, his parents saw him as a good kid. I put that in quotations, good kid. He was considered to be very compliant. And he would do anything and everything to get the approval of his parents and other adults.
0: I'm so sick of the narrative that a good kid has to qualify as obedient and compliant. I... I hate it because
1: it's like kids who are disobedient is a normal fucking child. Like it is part yeah. of development. If your child is constantly obedient, they need to be in therapy because something's wrong. Absolutely. I, yeah. Just ask literally any child who was seen as the perfect kid. <sighs> just, just ask. Now. He never got into fights. He was never suspended. He never got into trouble. He wanted the approval of all adults. And so he towed the line. While his parents saw him as a good kid, his doctors, on the other hand, actually saw him being the good kid and always needing the approval of adults as something wrong developmentally with Danny. So in order for them to understand Danny a little bit better, the doctors gave him a questionnaire. So this questionnaire had questions like, I feel, and then it's a blank, and Danny was supposed to fill in the blank. And with that question, he put in, I can't ever leave my parents. So I feel I can't ever leave my parents. Another question said, my greatest fear, blank. And he said, my, fi- fi- my greatest fear is my parents will die before I'm ready. Oh my God. So, as somebody who is trauma informed, to me, this screams, there is like a, what is it called? Um, bond, a, a, what is it? I'm, um, my God, I'm drawing a blank. Bonding. It's like a complete reliance on. Yeah. Trauma, not trauma bonding, but. What the hell? Is I the know what I'm you're trying saying? to say, and I also don't Enmeshment, know. Enmeshment. Yeah. Unhealthy. Yeah, I swear to God, I can't speak to it. But you guys get what I'm saying, right? There is a a level of unhealthy connection, enmeshment, reliance that he is having on his parents. And the doctors are seeing this as a red flag of sorts. Now, the doctors were also worried about Danny's emotions and emotional development. Danny struggled with wetting the bed and usually this can indicate some kind of emotional distress in a child. We've seen this with kids who are molested or raped or anything as a child and have sexual trauma. They will be wetting the bed and that is because they don't know how to deal with that. They have a lot of these emotions. They don't know how to handle it and that ends up resulting in bedwetting. Now, I will come out and say, Danny was not molested as a child that we know of. Nothing has ever been said to that. So the doctors at this point are just saying like, hey, there's some emotional distress, developmental delay, you know, something's going on. But his parents were just like, no, he's just a good kid and a hard sleeper. What? They very much just a hard sleep brushed it off. Like that's, that's nothing. It's, it's fine. Okay. So, growing up, there was a little girl named Becky Exley. They went to church with Becky Exley and her family and both families, the Corwins and the Exleys were friends. They would go do stuff outside of church together and Danny would actually babysit Becky. Now, Becky is like a good handful of years younger than Danny. Keep that in mind. As Danny started hitting puberty, his peers noticed he was obsessed with sex. And not the normal, I've hit puberty and sex sounds interesting and I'm getting a boner every every morning. It is every joke, every conversation, every moment of every day, he is talking about sex. And even boys his age who are also hitting puberty are like, dude, chill the fuck out. This is weird. So during this time, as Danny is a teen, on March 15th, 1974, Danny's neighbors had an eight-month-old baby and they decided to hire a 15-year-old girl named Kathy as their babysitter so they could go out on a date. A little while after putting the baby to bed, Kathy heard the, ba- the boy crying, so she went upstairs to check on him, but was confronted in the hallway by a naked teen he tells her that if you scream i'll kill you and then he forces her into the master bedroom makes her get naked and then proceeds to rape Kathy oh my god when he finished yeah when he finished he Kathy got up scooped up her clothes and locked herself in the bathroom very quickly but after only being in the bathroom for a few minutes she hears a knock at the door and she's scared but eventually she opens it cuz she's like he's going to either break down the door or it hurt me or I open it. So she just opened it. And as she opened it, the light from the bathroom shines on the boy's face. And she actually got a good look at the boy. And he says, you have my shirt. So I guess when she like scooped up her clothes, she scooped up his shirt as well. Random. Now he ends up telling her that she doesn't know him. He lives across town. He goes to school across town. She doesn't know him. And the boy left. Kathy then locks herself back in the bathroom and just waits for the baby's parents to get home. Mm -hmm. When they get home, they found Kathy distraught, locked in that bathroom. She tells them what happened and they immediately call the police. Now she explains what the boy looks like when the cops get there. Mm -hmm. And just from how she explained it, the owner of the house, so the little boy's dad, said, that sounds like Danny. Who lives next door? So the cops went over there the next day and talked with Danny and his father. And Danny, of course, denies everything. He's like, "Now I was home, but I never left the house. Kathy returned when she was actually talking with the cops. She said that she thought that it was some boy at school named Speedy, but she wasn't sure. She thought she might have recognized I know, right? I've like, got that's the shit all I ever found out. Been like squinting
0: no. at you the whole time, <laughs> and then suddenly Speedy was the thing that got me.
1: <laughs> so the a few days later, Kathy returns to school. She sees Speedy and quickly is like, "Okay, it's not Speedy's not the guy who raped me." So she calls the cops and says, "No, it was not. It wasn't Speedy." So they continue to. Question Danny, and Danny Quinn continues to deny it. And they ask him if he'll take a polygraph, and so he agrees. Like, sure, I'll take a polygraph. So the first time he takes a polygraph, and it comes back inconclusive. So they make him take it again. Second time comes back inconclusive, so they make him take it again. Third time also comes back inconclusive, and so at that point, with three inconclusive polygraphs, the cops talk to Kathy and just tell her that with no direct evidence and with, you know, like there's nothing even with the polygraph and with you wrongly identifying another boy at the beginning, we can't do anything and we can't charge Danny with the rape. And so the case goes cold. Danny's parents and many people at his church chalked it up to, oh, it's just a case of mistaken identity. That's all. She saw his face. I, I know. I know. Saw his face. And even the owner of the home was like, that sounds like the next door neighbor boy. Okay. What year Just is Just from this? how she described also, it. Also, I'm sorry. What
0: this year is this? This
1: was uh, 1974. So March of 1974. Sadly, not the best time to be a sexual assault victim. Not that it's a whole lot better today. I was going to say, sadly, this sounds very
0: on track for the time. Yes. Not that it should have been, Mm -hmm. but
1: yeah, uh, that makes sense. Oh, just wait. Just, just fucking wait because I, hmm, hmm, I tell you. So on May 16th, uh, 1975, the Corwin family was supposed to go to a church retreat. So that day, Danny was supposed to leave school around noon, go home, get some stuff, and then meet his dad at his work. So Danny left school around noon But instead of leaving the school and going to his house, he decided to just hang out in the parking lot. And at 2 p.m. that day, a girl named Brenda Evans also leaves a little bit early. And as she's walking through the parking lot, she sees Danny sitting on the hood of the car right beside her car. She says hi. He says hi back. And she goes to get in her car. She gets in, sits down, puts her stuff in her seat, and then leans over to get an eight track off of the ground. Right. And then when she leans up, Danny is standing in her doorway. Lola's over there laughing at me right now, but eight eight (laughs) tracks. Because I told her the story about when I presented this case over on YouTube. I said, I was talking about eight tracks, and I go, (laughs) I go, oh my God, do you guys remember the eight tracks? And then you have to like stick the pencil inside and like wind it up. And after I like recorded that, edited it, and posted it, my husband watched it and started laughing his butt off because he's like, "Lacey, an eight track and a cassette tape are two different things." And I was like, "Oh,
0: I'm she's done. showing her age. So,
1: <laughs> she's showing her age is all." Well. I was telling Lila that story, and uh, so that I, you know, we got to it in the actual story. She's like, 8 track and a cassette I'm her sorry. Can you explain to me? Is he, is he on the passenger side or is he on her side? And no, he's in the driver's side. Okay, he's on the driver's side. Board. So she's in the dr- yeah, she's in the driver's seat. He's in, but he's like, the door's open and he's standing there, right in her doorway. And he holds a knife. He's holding a knife to her and he says, scoot over. Now, at first she thinks it's a joke and just starts laughing. But Danny starts screaming at her to scoot over. Panic. Now, Brenda, remember she's a teen. Yeah, panicking fucking shit out of herself, I'm sure. So she's a teen, of course. She's scared and she quickly moves over. Not that anybody's going to be scared in that moment. But her first response is comply. And I understand that. So she moves over to the passenger seat. Danny gets in and drives away from the school. Brenda is scared and starts asking Danny where he's taking her. But every single time she asks, he just starts yelling at her and telling her to shut up. Danny ends up taking her about a mile and a half away from the school and parks in like a foresty area. He holds the knife to her and tells her to undress while they're still in the car. She refuses, so Danny crawls on top of her with the knife in her face, and he tells her that if she doesn't undress herself, he will rip the clothes off of her.
0: Oh, my God. Now, in
1: fear, Brenda complies. So Danny gets out of the car so that she can undress, but as she's undressing, she's not going fast enough for him, so he starts ripping all of her (gasps) clothes off and throwing them into a muddy puddle. He then gets in the car, covers Brenda's mouth, and begins to rape her. After he got himself dressed, like after he gets done, um, Brenda tried to plead with him to just leave her, but Danny would not listen, and he got himself dressed, and he tried to get Brenda out of the car, but she did not want to. She was like, I want my clothes, and he refused, so she kicked him in the nuts (laughs) And he was like, oh, okay. And he gave her her clothes. That's so good. Go, Brenda. I know, right? I was like, that's right, girl. So she gets herself dressed and she gets out of the vehicle. When she got out, she like slightly stepped away from Danny. And I think he assumed that she was trying to get away. So he went to grab her. And then it ended up in this like struggle between the two. And it ended with Brenda on the ground and Danny on top of her. Before Brenda knew what was happening, Danny started stabbing her in the fleshy part of her oh right my arm. God. So, like, right in the top of her arm, he just stabs her. Now, Brenda's screaming, of course, and she starts saying, Do you know what you're doing? And <gasps> he replies with, I know exactly what I'm doing.
0: Why would she say, Do you know what you're doing? I'm sorry, that
1: not you i think you say I think, all different types of things during attacks that uh, yeah i think i'm trying to put myself in somebody who's a teen maybe maybe she's 16 17 around this time and she knows danny she's been to school with danny and she's it's she's been in this like stage of shock yeah for yeah for a long time and i think it, it, him stabbing her was so out of left field because she actually knew her perpetrator that she was like, "Do you know what you're doing? like maybe he's like having a manic episode or or he's out of his mind, and so I can see that being the reason she said that in that moment, yeah, I mean if that makes sense
0: i I think it's really interesting that she did say that, and um I'm glad that she did
1: yeah, I'm glad that she did. I don't know if maybe it made him yeah, think like just a little getting bit. him to talk. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it did not. It did not make him think because he's like, I know exactly what I'm doing. He then stabbed her in the stomach and then he put the knife against her throat and slit Brenda's throat. Oh my God, that was a jump. Yeah. Brenda immediately grabs her neck trying to hold the blood back, but Danny stabs her again in the stomach. And then lastly, he puts the knife against her chest between her breasts looking at her very sadistically, starts pushing the knife in slowly. Not I, fast, not a stab, just slowly in between her breasts. How did people not know about this place? <sighs> this just... Uh, you'll, you'll understand why. You'll understand why the more we go into is it. Is he protected by money? Now, Tell me. No, I'm just kidding. Bre- no, not money. Brenda knows that Danny... At this point, she's been stabbed multiple times, yeah. is not going to leave her unless he thinks she's dead. So she pretends. She pretends to be dead. He Smart He stands up and watches as she lays there bleeding. Oh, shit. And dying. He just watches. She's pretending to be dead. And then after a minute, he covers her body in a piece of plywood and some dirt. He then goes and gets uh her car, throws all of her stuff out of it, gets the car and takes off. But he turns the car around to where he's driving straight at Brenda's body. <gasps> and just before he gets to her, he turns and barely misses her. Barely. Now, I've never hated a man more than right now. I this I I mean castrate anybody? hmm. Mm-hmm. Now. With two stabs to the stomach, a stab to the chest, a stab to the upper part of her right arm, and a slit throat, Brenda is able to get all of the debris off of her and make her way to the road. As she is looking at herself in this condition, she is shocked to see all of her wounds and at the same time, still be alive. When she looked at her chest where Danny stabbed her, she noticed that the clasp from her bra is what kept the knife from going in any further. And later it was said that it is part of what saved her life. Because if he would have gone any deeper, he would have hit her heart. I got to start wearing bras
0: again. Ugh. Yeah.
1: And I think as she said clasp. And so I'm thinking it was like one of those like the front clip in the front type bras. Ugh, those yeah, are so that's rare now. <laughs> they really are. Really are. Now, Brenda made it to the road and a passerby saw her and stopped to offer help. They took her down the road to a golf course where they called the police and an ambulance. Now, when Danny took off in her car, he went and hid her car behind a barn. And then he just went back to school and made small talk with people and his classmates in the parking lot. He went back to school? He went back to school. Yep. He even went to Dairy Queen with a classmate named Jenny to get a drink. Yep. On the way over to Dairy Queen, uh, Jenny asks him what he had done that day. And he said, quote, I did some strange things today. Oh, really now? Just strange? <laughs> okay. Yeah, you
0: dead hair, buddy. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, I took another route. I stabbed a girl while, you know, after raping her and slitting her throat. You know. No. No biggie. Just
1: some, yeah, just, just some strange things. They also, while they were in the car on the radio, like it was announced on the radio, the attack. And oh, that was quick. She said that was good. He made no, no mention, no flinching. Like it didn't face him one way or another, hearing it over the radio. Wow. He also asked Jenny to take him out to uh, his father's work and drop him off. So she did. Back at the golf course, ambulances arrive, and while they are stabilizing Brenda, she tells police that it was Danny Lee Corwin who attacked her. Officer Kenneth Milner was on scene at the golf course, and when he heard it was Danny, he knew exactly where to go to try and find him. You see, Officer Kenneth Milner was the same investigator for the rape of the 15-year-old Kathy the year prior. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So he knew exactly who Danny was. And so he went... stroke of luck in that way. Yep. He went straight to Danny's house. Of course, nobody's home. So he knocks on the door next door. And he said that he was looking for the Corwin family and specifically Danny. And the mom or the wife at this house said, I can assume why. And Officer Milner says, that he's looking for Danny because he's a suspect in an aggravated sexual assault, and she responds with, "That sounds about right."
0: <gasps> what mm-hmm. red red banner, red banner,
1: red. Yeah, huge. well, remember it was remember it was her son who Kathy babysat. Oh, the year prior, yeah. So this is the neighbor who Kathy babysat for, and then Danny came and raped her while she was babysitting their son. So it's all coming full circle full circle. Uh-huh. So they they knew. They everybody knew it was Danny. Well, at least this family knew it was Danny. They just couldn't tie him to it, the first one. Now the wife tells the officer where Nancy, Danny's mom works. And so he heads over there. He finds Nancy, tells her what's going on, and she's like he should be at Phil's work, which is his dad. So she follows the officer over to Phil's work. But as they're driving over, they see the family station wagon drive past them. And the officer notices that it's Danny driving. So he flips around and he tries to get Danny to stop. But Danny decides that he's going to run for it. And a chase ensues. Danny reaches up to like 90 miles per hour while the cop is trying to get him to stop. He goes in front of Danny and like turns him, turns up, turns in front of him and cuts him off. So he has to stop and forces him to. And puts Danny under arrest. As he's been under arrest, of course, they're taking him back to the police station. And somehow, I don't know how all of this happened, but somehow Phil, the dad, ends up at the police station before Danny and the police officer arrive. As they pull Danny out of the car and are walking into the police station, his dad is yelling at him, keep your mouth shut, don't say anything.
0: I mean, good parental advice? Yes. With to get a lawyer, even if you're innocent, always get a lawyer.
1: But It is hard to not be judgmental in a moment like because that. Because we know and they know. Yeah, and it's because we they know. They know that he knows. That I, and, they know. And I know it, it's hard to not. I know that's sound advice. But it's hard to not feel like that is a sign of guilt for mm. me. It really is. And I know yeah. it shouldn't. I know it shouldn't. But it does. It does. It does. It does. It does. Well, Danny and Brenda in this situation are both minors. And so since they're minors, the case wasn't talked about in the media very much. I think there was like a small section in the newspaper that talked about the attack, but it didn't name the perpetrator or the victim. In jail, Danny was given a $10,000 bond. He stayed in jail for 30 days before he was bonded out. But during those 30 days, a lot happened amongst the community and the church and everything. So let's talk about what happened.
0: I was going to ask, how does this get religious? Because...
1: Oh, we, oh <laughs> just, we're, we're about, to, we're about okay. to get into that. So Brenda's father was a prominent member in their community. He was on the board of education and he was the type of man that was loud demanding and always got his way. So after his daughter was attacked, he was very vocal about wanting justice for her. Yeah, I agreed. I would be too. Um, And he had a lot of people backing him, but Danny's family had the backing of the Pentecostal church, and especially the pastor, Wilson Keenan. Pastor Keenan didn't believe that Danny could do this, and he used everything in his power to help the Corwin family. During this time, the 30 days, the church became divided because half the church believed Danny did do it and that the whole family just needed to be shunned while the other half didn't believe that Danny did it and that this was just another case of mistaken identity. Uh, How many times can this kid be mistaken This is for a rapist? This right? is defiance. Come this on. This is I, not...
0: An, willful ignorance. Yeah, this, yeah. Come on. For sure.
1: The church was also spreading rumors about Brenda saying that she was loose, she slept around, and that she lured Danny, meaning it was ultimately her fault. They need to come talk to me. We need to have words.
0: I, I, Me and them and Weya. We need to all have a discussion right right now.
1: Don't you dare spread those nasty rumors, bitch. So remember earlier when I was talking about Becky Exley, the young girl that Danny used to babysit when he was, when she was there? Yeah. So that girl said that during this time that Danny was in jail, that everybody in the church thought that Brenda was a whore. So. Good job spreading Jesus's love, calling people whores for being raped and almost murdered. Hey, a whore did God's work
0: so they can shut the fuck up. That is
1: true.
0: Lots of whores did God's work. So fuck you guys.
1: (laughs) Right? Uh, After Danny was bonded out, he resumed life as usual, you know, like they always do. He went to church, acted as if nothing happened. While some thought Danny should be banned from the church, at least until the case had been resolved, Pastor Keenan welcomed him with open arms. Yeah, not only that, Pastor Keenan also used the church to try to raise money to pay for Danny's defense.
0: I was going to say, this mm-hmm. is going to turn into the church protecting this young man because they're going to mm-hmm. blame it on the woman and how the woman ate the apple and
1: who's mm-hmm. he what's it? do 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 Love that. Yep, yeah, exactly. Egg fucking exactly. During the, t- uh, during the lead up to the trial, the pastor was beyond driven to keep Danny out of jail. He said that even if Danny did do the crime, he needed, he didn't need to go to jail. He needed to get mental health help or a therapist or quote, church counseling. Excuse me. Church counseling? No. No.
0: None of that has ever helped anybody. No. I don't know a single person. Okay, you know what I find really funny? And you know what? If you go to Church of the Highlands and you happen to go to one of these marriage conferences, I hope it works out for you. And I I hope all the Mm -hmm. best things for your marriage, genuinely. However, almost every single person I know that has attended those got divorced either that year or a couple years later. I don't see it doing much good. Like the therapy that they offer their members just seems to be like more like false hope than so like realistic solutions.
1: Yeah. And it's like, okay, if you are getting church counseling, nine out of 10 times, the person who is counseling you, they have a degree in crockpots. <laughs> they don't have. Uh, they don't have no license. They're not a therapist. No, yeah. They're a stay-at-home mom who cooks meals and cleans, which nothing wrong <gasps> with that, but it doesn't mean you need to be given marriage advice. So no, it's giving eight passengers. It's it's giving yes. eight passengers mom. vibes. <sighs> Is it not? I'm yeah. a thousand percent or connections, her new... Oh, oh, we'll talk really. about we it will more be later, but about I digress. We'll please talk about that please continue. <laughs> we'll talk about her. Oh, she got me fired up now. So he's like, you know, he needs therapy, a mental health hospital. He doesn't, he doesn't need jail. Danny defense was a former FBI agent, and he knew that Danny had a small, small chance of winning the case. Danny wasn't a conversational type. So he was like, I'm not putting you on the stand. That's not going to go good. So what we need to do is we need to have you take a polygraph. So he had Danny take a polygraph and he actually passed the polygraph. And the person who was giving the polygraph test could tell that Danny was lying, but the machine was saying he was telling the truth. And so the the person giving the test thought, I, I'm going to bluff and so he told danny that he failed and the moment he told danny he failed danny broke confessed to everything
0: you know i'm not i don't condone lying but like it's these moments where they bluff that like it tends to just crack everything open
1: i i was like what that that cracked him just saying oh you you you, you failed and he was like bah. but okay you have to think about it we're in the 70s Polygraphs, Polygraphs held are seen as back like the Holy Grail. They held so much weight. So I'm sure the, the hearing he failed was also equivalent to hearing, we found your DNA on her yeah. body, you know, kind of thing. So I'm sure that's what made him break. So at this point, both the prox- prosecution and the defense thought that with all the evidence and Danny's confession, this was going to be a slam dunk case for a life sentence. But old pastor keenan just couldn't have that and so he went to the prosecutor's office to try to negotiate well no 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 more like demand for uh danny to get a deal of some sort so Whoa. at first he demanded to have the whole case thrown out just throw it out no just throw it out the prosecutor looked at him and said he cut her throat so then the pastor was like, okay, okay, well, how about we agree to like probation for Danny? Probation? Yeah. And so again, the prosecutor's like, he let her cut throat. her throat. So the pastor then replies with, but they're a good family. They didn't know what Danny had done. This isn't about them. This is about
0: him. It's about the victim. Who the fuck cares? Who the fuck cares? You know what? I wonder what the sermons look like. <laughs> like in the weeks Seriously. that this was happening. I just, if I could peer into that, I wonder what it would
1: look like. I, I, right. I wish I could. Now, as the prosecutor is sitting there and the pastor and he's trying, he starts to proceed to berate Brenda's character. He calls her a whore. He says that she slept around and he says that she lured Danny in. The prosecutor is shocked, not because of what he's hearing, because this is very common in sexual assault cases back in these days for the defense to attack the character of the victim because DNA was not a thing. And so all you had was well, you know, he said, she said type cases when it comes to this kind of stuff. So this is stuff that he had heard time and time again, but he'd never heard it coming out of a pastor's mouth. So he was like, what the hell? Now I will, I do want to note that this is, in Texas, uh, this has been outlawed that like, you're not allowed to go after the victim's character in sexual assault or rape, cases. So I was like, okay, Texas, you got something right. Good job. The one thing. The one thing, right. As he is berating Brenda's character, the prosecutor is pissed. He is flaming because he has a confession. They do not need to prove anything. They have a literal confession from Danny. And so he just yells. He cut her throat and just screams at the pastor. like. I shouldn't have to explain this
0: to you. I didn't think I'd have to write that one down for you. <laughs> Bo Burnham. I, I should, yeah, I
1: shouldn't have to be defending a rape victim who was almost murdered. The fact that she survived is just astounding. I feel like throwing up. <laughs> right? Yeah. I can't even, can't even with this guy. Brenda's testimony was a huge part of this trial. And since the prosecutor knew that the defense was going to go after her character, he felt obligated to talk to Brenda's dad and warn him about what was coming. After the father heard how they were going to berate Brenda, he couldn't take that. And he was like, no, I'm not letting my daughter take the stand and be attacked like that. I'm not going to do it. I completely understand the father doing this. So... What this did was it left both sides wanting to come to some kind of plea deal and avoid a trial, but the defense didn't know that Brenda wouldn't testify at this time. So they are like really eager to do a plea deal and the prosecution offered 30 years and in Texas at this time, it meant that Danny would serve maybe 10 to 15, depending on good behavior. The defense was excited and said yes, uh, but the prosecution went to Brenda's father And he refused because he said it wasn't enough time, which I agree. Now, right before the trial was supposed to start, Danny actually decided to plead guilty. And this meant that he was having a sentencing trial, not an actual trial. So this was just to figure out like how long he'd get in prison. Before the trial started, Danny was assessed by a mental health professional and he was diagnosed with latent schizophrenia. So at the sentencing trial, the defense brought up his mental health and Danny had different witnesses who spoke on his character to try and help him get a lesser sentence.
0: I'm sorry, pause. I'm not a very
1: smart man. What is latent (laughs) schizophrenia? Google says that latent schizophrenia is a mental disorder that affects a person's ability to tell what is real and not real, to act normal and to think clearly, but with no history of schizophrenia episodes. Interesting. The more you know. It's interesting. I'll just leave it at that because I just don't know that I see that. Honestly, but. I have
0: a hot take, go for it. Any any mental health diagnosis from the 60s and back, I feel like it was wrong and wasn't handled correctly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I that's just I, me. Mean. I don't think I don't think it was taken into consideration like the fact that he did this after raping her. Yeah. And so it's like there was a very large sexual aspect to the crime. And those are different mental health diagnoses, you Mm -hmm. know, when it comes to sexual gratification and murder and things like that. So I don't, yeah, I'm not going to take that with a grain of salt. Let's just say that. Now, the people that talked about his character, I think it was just like his family and maybe a person or two from church. On the other side, the prosecution They had witnesses like the officers and the EMTs who took care of Brenda and they gave their testimony of what they saw when they arrived and her condition. Now, this was very, you know, convincing because they're like, her throat was slit. She's bleeding everywhere. She was stabbed here. She was stabbed there. That is a very strong testimony to be given. Brenda actually does end up taking the stand. At the sentencing trial, I think since Danny decided to plead guilty, it just made her father feel more comfortable with her taking the stand at this point because they weren't trying to prove or not prove anything. It was just them deciding like what was the extent of the crime and what will be the extent of his punishment and time in prison. Did she get to say "fuck you, bitch" from the stage? I wish. I, I don't <laughs> know. Or come what here, she let me give you another kick, stand. boy. You didn't get enough, and I, I can't. I can't imagine what she probably felt like having to sit there and face her perpetrator along with like her
0: parents. That's the thing with with sexual oh, crimes gosh. having to like relive it is already horrible and then in front of strangers plus loved ones plus the abuser it's yes. like it's just a whole lot to do
1: all at once. Yeah. So. When people say, like, I can't, like, when victims say, I, I can't take the stand or I can't come forward, I, I get it. It took me 30 some years before I even told my family. Yeah. Or not 30 some years. It took me until I was 30 hey, to there's no shame. tell my family what happened as a child. There's yeah, no shame. It, there's it's such a huge thing to try to understand. And you only understand it if you've actually been a victim of any kind of sexual assault. And I hope none of you ever are. Yes. And if you have, I'm sorry. Since she took the stand, the defense could actually like cross-examine her, but they decided not to because if they did and they went after her character, it would actually just look really bad on Danny and could actually get him more time in jail (laughs) since he confessed to it and pled Mm -hmm. guilty. Mm -mm. The judge who was in charge of sentencing Danny really wanted him to get some help. So he made sure that the prison Danny would be incarcerated at would give him mental health treatment. So he called over there and made sure they were going to have it. And they said yes. So I thought that was really good of a judge in this time frame of the decades. Right. So he ended up sentencing Danny to 40 years. Uh, The Corwins were crushed, of course, seeing Danny get put away for so long. But on the other hand, Brenda's family were highly disappointed because they didn't feel like it was long enough for what he had done to their daughter. Hell no don't. I don't think any time's long enough. She, he, he tried to murder her. He took her life her. in a whole other way
0: that she has to... Yeah, she will never yeah, deal with. She'll
1: never be the same. Yeah. Lock him up and throw away the
0: key. Any kind of sexual crime, in my opinion, is taking someone's life from them. It was their former life, though. Like, they still have to move yeah. on and, and create a new life for
1: themselves post-crime. They should have locked him away and thrown away the key. They should have done it. They should have just. Is he it. out? Uh, we're jumping ahead. Let me. Okay. We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> we will get there. Mm-hmm. So Danny goes to prison. Um, when he goes to prison, most of the town just moved on past the incident, didn't talk about it. Both parties were minors, so it wasn't talked about in the news. And Brenda's classmates knew that she just wanted to move on and just get back to normal living. She didn't bring it up. And so they didn't either. They just let her live her life. So it kind of just got pushed to the back burner and it was what it was. During Danny's mental health treatments in prison, he told them he heard voices that would tell him to do things. It also came out that he was raped in prison by another inmate and that he was sexually assaulted. He sexually assaulted animals as a child. No,
0: Uh, no, 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 Mm -hmm.
1: no. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, that's all we know. So we don't have any more details for that. Thank God. Thank God. (laughs) Thank God. Uh, He was put on some meds because, you know, he was diagnosed with latent schizophrenia. So he was put on some meds and he was in segregated population. But after just a year, he was put into Gen Pop and he stopped his mental health treatment and his mental health medication. Wow, that's not smart. I, I don't know if you know anything about especially drugs that would treat Latent schizophrenia. It is not a drug you just stop taking. No, yeah, you have to wean. That that that's not good. So was he weaned? I have no idea. But huh. yeah, I, I would doubt it. Damn. But he was just off of it, and also latent schizophrenia. I just it, you're not cured after a year. No, yeah. Why was why was he taking off his meds? I I have questions. I, I no also answers.
0: have questions and concerns, mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, during his stay in prison, he got regular visits from his family and friends from church like Becky Exley. I would like to make a note that uh, Becky is around fourth or fifth grade during this time that she's visiting a convicted rapist. No, no, no. And attempted murderer. I'm, I'm angry. In prison, Danny's father told him that he needed to make the best of a bad situation, so he ran with that. He got his GED and he took some classes. Danny was considered to be a model prisoner. He got along with all the other inmates. He obeyed, you know, the warden and the officers. He 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 did great. He was so good they gave him extra freedoms. He could go outside longer. He could go to sections nobody else could. He got extra library time. Like he was A plus, buddy. He was great at prison. Very good at it. Unfortunately, During the 70s and 80s, Texas was growing exponentially. And with that, problems arise. I knew it. Because more of a higher population mm -hmm, means an increase in crime, which means more people going to prison. Less space in the prison. Exactly, which leads to overcrowding. So what happened was in order to deal with this problem, the prisons started cutting sentences drastically. There was so much pressure on the prison system to get them out, push them out the back door. Come in the front, push them out the back, and so you would get time cut off your sentence for fucking anything. He got time cut off for taking classes for you know good behavior X Y Z. He was able to get parole in 1986, meaning he only served nine years of his 40 year sentence. Nine, nah. nine goddamn years. That's all he's. That's that, nothing. That's, that's all. That's nothing. No. For what he did? Are you fucking kidding me? That's,
0: that's literally slapping his victim in the face.
1: Okay, but get this. Get this. When he's released, he was surrounded by support from his family and his church. He was reformed. He's forgiven.
0: Huh? That doesn't work that way, but okay.
1: Yeah, he went back to church. He went back to life as if as, everything was normal. He didn't just get out of prison from being, you know, a, a rapist and an attempted murderer. No. <laughs> They even allowed him to lead one of the youth groups. Oh, hell nah. I, Where's Medea? What Somebody get Medea. What the fuck is going on? Yeah. Now, because of Pastor Kenan's support for Danny during the trial, and especially him trying to raise funds for Danny's defense, it caused a lot of tension within the church. And while Danny was in prison, Pastor Kenan was pushed out and a new pastor was put in. Mm. But... That pastor knew everything that was, that had happened and he still allowed Danny. I was going to say around (sighs) kids. It didn't really matter. So like it It didn't matter. You all supported this man. Like, no. Also, after he left prison, Danny got a girlfriend for the first time in his life. I'm nervous. You want to know who (laughs) his girlfriend was? Who you want to know who it was? (gasps) No. Yes.
0: No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. Shut up.
1: Yes, it was. I'm gonna
0: throw up right Becky now. Becky
1: Exley. I'm gonna yeah. Becky that's it. fucking Exley was his girlfriend. Becky, yeah. you could do better. So Come nine on. years. She's she's just barely out of high school at <sighs> this point. I'm fine. I just shuddered so hard. <laughs> <laughs> what were fuck were her parents thinking? She was like fourth, fifth, sixth grade while she's visiting this man in prison. Why? Yeah. What the fuck. Now, Becky says later on that she felt groomed. Oh, honey, you were. I'm so sorry. She was in, right. So when she was in high school, I don't know if she was out of high school or if this was like end of high school when she started dating Danny. I can't remember. But she felt groomed by Danny's parents uh, because they thought that Becky would be this great role model for Danny. It would just like lead him onto this good path in life. And so they had a very like hands-off approach to their relationship. And this meant that they allowed Danny and Becky to have sex at their house anytime, which no shame in that, but just remember the church they're going to. Like, you're not supposed to have sex before marriage. They're orchestrating this. <laughs> they're, oh, they are very much orchestrating this. And they have been. Do better. Becky says that during the times that they had sex, this was honestly the first red flag that she could see. She, like, of course, hindsight, right? She said that multiple times during sex, Danny couldn't finish. Okay. And she questioned him about it. And he goes, it's normal for some guys to not be able to finish. It's normal.
0: Is it? No. Okay. I was about to say, every guy I've been with always finished. Always. Always. Always.
1: Unless you have ED, which usually you don't have that unless you're like an older man. Older you or you medications. Different medications can
0: make that happen yeah, medica- too.
1: Exactly. Yeah. He was not on any medications. She's young, so she's just like, okay, all yeah, right, sure. And she brushes it off. She had grown up having a huge crush on Danny since the time oh. he babysit her. She dreamed about marrying him. It was just this huge thing. And so she had worked this up in her head. And so she looked past a lot of stuff because she didn't want anything to come in between the fantasy that she had literally spent her whole life building. Oh, honey. Uh, and now they're dating and everyone's goal is for Danny to um, get on with his life and get past his past. So they thought, okay, best thing we can do is get you in college. So they had Danny apply and he got accepted into Mary Harden Baylor. But they were like, that's not good enough. We want you to even go further. We want you to go to A&M. So he spent one semester at Mary Harden Baylor. And while he was at Mary Harden Baylor, he applies for A&M and gets in. So he's like, you know, everyone's all excited. He gets to go to A&M. Well, as he was paroled, part of his parole was that he had to go to counseling and he had to have like check-ins with his parole officer. Okay. So in order for him to go to AM, he had to get it passed by both his therapist and his parole officer because it was like an hour and a half away. Mm-hmm. They saw A&M as this very prestigious school. And so they were like, of course you can go, signed off. But when Danny started going to A&M in January of 1987... He he stopped having check-ins with his parole officer and he stopped having therapy sessions. Oh my. He'd only he'd only been out of jail for like six months, mind you. What this doesn't seem the justice system when I say the system failed her, the, the or the system failed everybody. Like it failed. It failed. Failed time and time again. When Danny went to A&M, he reconnected with a man named Ben Pruitt. He was actually a volunteer. He did like the wood shop class in the prison. And so he was very... Ben Pruitt was very... Ben Pruitt was very knowledgeable about inmates and prison, like life after prison kind of thing. And so they reconnected. Ben offered Danny a job at his cabinetry business. And he just told Danny, the only stipulation is you have to keep your nose out of trouble. And we're good. Danny agreed. And so he was hired. Hmm. So Danny's at A&M. He's off on his own. He's living by himself. He's away from his parents for the first time in literally his entire life besides the stint in prison. He was still around other people. On February 13th, 1987, 72-year-old Alice Price drove to her church in G, Texas to do her daily three-mile walk, Alice normally filled her days with reading the Bible, going to church, and getting in her daily exercise post having surgery on her heart a few years prior. I love it. I know, right? She's just a go-getter. She's keeping fit spiritually, physically. I love to hear it. I mean, you think of an old, southern lady that was alice price she's the cutest i love her now she usually uh, was home by 8 30 in the morning mm-hmm. uh, but her grandson david he drove by the church at 8 50 and noticed that her car was still there didn't think much of it but then he drove by again at 10 a.m and realized that her car was still there at 10 a.m and this sent him through the work roof like alarm bells are going off so he looks around he cannot find her anywhere and Normandie is a small town. It is just about 500 people, even today. And this is back Damn. in the 70s. <laughs> so it's, their population has probably fluctuated within like 50 to 100 people in the last 40, 50 years. So it's a very small area. When he couldn't find her, um, he notified the cops and the cops started looking for her quickly. She's in her 70s, it's February. Yes, it's Texas, but it still gets cold. So they were very scared. There was a massive search for her. There were many volunteers, men on horseback. Everybody's looking for her. But unfortunately... Listeners, I'm holding my
0: forehead right now in anticipation because right, I know what the fuck is happening now.
1: I know, I know. Unfortunately, they found nothing. So that whole day, Alice never returned home. And so by the time night fell, they had to call the search off and reconvene the next day. The next day, they continued their search And around 4 p.m., some men discovered Alice's body in some bushes. Now, this gets slightly graphic, okay? She was naked, face down, and had a smiley face carved into her back. After her autopsy, it was found that she had been raped, strangled, and stabbed multiple times. The cops were baffled and lost. This was not something they knew how to deal with. Like I said, 500 to 600 people in this tiny little small town. A smiley the face. The towns beside it are small. A smiley yeah. face. A fucking, a fucking
0: smiley face. A little old lady. Psychotic. Naked, raped, smiley
1: face, stabbed. 72 years old. You son of a bitch. Mm. Yeah. They didn't know how to. They didn't know how to do the, deal with this. They're it's a tiny small town. You don't. They're, they're not dealing with serial serial killers in Texas. No. Yeah. As they're trying to investigate this, they do have one witness come forward, and they said that they had seen a brown truck in the area, but that was all. The cops did hypnotize him to see if he could remember anything else, but it didn't work. And I'm sorry, Texas officers are hypnotizing people. You know someone. They're fucking desperate. They need more information. They don't do that shit. (laughs) No. They don't believe in that. They went down every avenue that they could think of. One family member of Alice's was even like having ties with the mafia and loan sharks. And so they were like, that's gotta be it. Come on, mafia, loan sharks. No, led nowhere. Eventually, the investigation came to a halt and left everybody in town living on edge. Like, you've heard it before. It was the same in the 70s in Texas, small town. Nobody's locking their fucking doors. Everybody's just roaming the streets and kids are playing and going to their neighbor's house and it's normal. Not anymore. Everyone's freaked the fuck out because if somebody can kill a 72-year-old lady and not just kill her, but rape her and carve a smiley face at her back, then nobody's safe. Literally nobody. Tell me what happens. I'm on the edge of my seat. Meanwhile, Danny was traveling back to Temple to spend time with Becky and his family on the weekends. Becky says that during this time, she started to catch Danny in some lies, and this was like red flag for her, right? The first lie she caught him in was Danny not paying one of his bills. I'm laughing because it was just so fucking stupid. (sighs) He wasn't paying one of his bills. It was like a water bill or something like that. And she confronted him about it, and he was like, oh, no, I paid it. Like, it's (sighs) fine. I paid it with a check. We're good. And so she's like, okay, go get the check and like, show me. I want to make sure it got paid. And the checks have like a carbon copy, right? And so he went out to his truck to get the carbon copy to show her. And when he comes back in and shows her, she's not stupid. She knows it was a check that was just fucking written. (gasps) But again, she just lets it go, right?
0: She doesn't want anything to
1: come in between fantasy. Another time, uh, Danny had left his wallet in Temple when he had visited. So Becky called the automotive shop where Danny said he worked. But when she calls, <laughs> she found out that not only does Danny not work at this automotive shop, he had never worked there. Why, why did he lie about this? He had the job with Ben Pruitt at the cabinetry shop yeah. this entire time. Why would it have mattered? Why did he feel the need to lie about it? Was so Like I'm, like I'm telling you, it's so stupid why did you lie about this i don't i don't get it sometimes
0: you create your own reality you convince yourself of something like that super dumb
1: he definitely did so he tells um She gets worried about this. So she can goes to Danny's father, tells him what's going on. And he at first was like, oh, I'm a little concerned. But then chalks it up to, oh, Danny just doesn't want to disappoint his parents. Like he's probably just got another job and he doesn't want us to know he was let go or or something. So like, we're fine. Again, they chalk everything up to just like little things. No. Now due to these lies, Becky does start to lessen her trust of Danny. over Valid. Good girl. Yes. Right. And when Danny started like trying to come back to Temple for the weekends, many times Becky would make sure that she was out of town because she like started <laughs> to not want to see him. I was like, good call, good call. Uh, another thing that was happening during this time, Danny was failing in school. He was failing so badly that he was actually kicked out after just one semester at nm They were like, please do not cook that. <laughs> you failed. But Danny didn't tell anyone. Instead, he just continued to go to school every Tuesday and every Thursday and just like sit in the courtyard. <laughs> yeah, he just <laughs> kept going to school. Everything, Everything's good. Yeah, and he keeps us that for a while.
0: Wow, mastermind.
1: On the other hand though, he, like, he's failing in school, but he's excelling at work. He is showing up on time. He's working hard. He's like going the extra mile. It's like, I mean, polar opposites are happening. Now, in June of 1987, 26-year-old Deborah Ewing was working at a vision center in a mall strip in Conroe, Texas, when she barged into a financial office next door screaming for help. A woman named Gina was in the office bathroom when she heard the commotion. She came out and Deborah yelled that she had peed herself and that there was a man out there trying to attack her. Gina was terrified, but stepped towards the door, like, trying to lock it. Yeah. But when she did, she could kind of see through the blinds of the window, and she sees a man with a gun, (gasps) and her flight instinct kicks in, and she turns around, runs past Deborah, and locks herself in one of the offices and calls 911. Oh, man. Now, an officer is across the street, like, across the highway, actually, and he gets over there within 70 seconds of the phone call. That's some Good work. (laughs) Yeah, very fast. Drove around the building, sees nothing, and then backup arrives, and they go inside where they find Gina locked in the office, and she tells them what happened. They look around. They cannot find Deborah anywhere. The only thing they found were her shoes and her purse outside the back of the mission center. So she is now a missing person. (sighs) Gina told the police that the man was wearing corduroy pants and a brown hooded shirt, when the police talked to the owner of the vision center, she said that it sounded like a young man who was there installing cabinets earlier that very same day. Oh, So they figure out who the cabinetry shop is and they call the owner, <laughs> Ben it. So they tell Ben what's going on and say that the owner of the vision center said that it sounded a lot like one of his workers. Right off the bat, Ben you know, has Danny's defense. And he says that there's no way that Danny could have done that. But he did tell the officers about Danny's past convictions. <laughs> two days <laughs> Two days later on Sunday, a realtor was showing a potential buyer some land. But while they were walking around, they discovered the body of Deborah Ewing in some bush. Now, Deborah was naked from the waist down and she had looked to have been stabbed to death. After the body was found, some teenage boys came forward and said that they had been playing by the lake. So it was like, I guess there was a lake near this property. And they'd been playing by this lake on Friday afternoon slash early evening. And they remembered hearing screams from a woman.
0: This is just a a game of of people just not wanting to see truth.
1: This is just... Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is horrible. I feel bad for these teens because, like, what are they going to do? Oh, yeah. It's Texas. So it's a really, like, long and flat. And if there's a lot of brush, like, they couldn't see anything. But, like, as a teen, you hear screaming, like, what are you going to do? You know what I mean?
0: And it may not have... If they have never, like, heard a distressed person, maybe it doesn't really register with them because, you know, their brain may not process it as, oh, that's a like, not a fun
1: scream kind of thing. That's a warning. Yeah. Yeah. And it could have been like, she screamed only once, maybe twice, but then was hushed up. So if it was ongoing, maybe that would have been more alarming to them. You know, you just never know. Yeah. That's hard. Cops looked at the most likely suspects, which would have been her ex-employer and her ex-husband, but both of them had solid alibis and quickly ruled out. Since Danny was the only one who was a viable suspect at this point, they called Ben and just asked him, on Monday morning, just bring Danny in. Like, just bring him in and let's just talk to him and see what he says. So Ben's like, sure. Monday morning comes around, Danny walks in, tells him what's going on. Danny's like, sure, I'll go down and be questioned. So Ben takes him and they sit down and the cops start asking him about what he did after work. Danny says that he left the cabinetry shop at 4.20 p.m. He said he headed back to Temple, but remembered, he remembered seeing a watermelon stand and he's like, I want to bring my parents a watermelon. So he drove around looking for this watermelon stand, but couldn't find it. No watermelon stand in sight. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Lola is rolling your eyes so fucking hard right now. I'm 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 looking side to side, trying to make sense of watermelon like, really? and death. At this so point. he
1: couldn't, yeah, he, he couldn't find the watermelon stand. So he was like, "Ah, oh, shucks." So then he just went on and headed, kept heading to Temple to see his family, and then he got to Temple. So he's trying to be like, I was just during the time of the murder driving around looking for a watermelon. watermelon. Stand. <laughs> I'm innocent. I've never heard the watermelon excuse before. Okay. I I know, right? Like, you pulled that one right out of your ass. So, (laughs) Danny is being very convincing. Even Ben Pruitt said he was very calm, collected. He was answering the officer's questions. He told his whole story over and over and over again. Like, the cops would ask it in a kind of a different way or ask different parts to try to, like, get him to trip up or change his story never changed his story. So the cops were like there's no way this guy did it. But let's just be extra sure and let's see if the time frame works out. Danny left work at 4:20 and he had witnesses to corroborate this and then Gina, the witness at the financial office next door to the Vision Center, she said she saw the man between 4:30 430 and 4:35. The drive from the cabinetry shop to the Vision Center was 14 minutes. Even though that time frame, you know, 4:20 to 4:35, it's possible. It could happen. The cops were like, no way. It's too close. Traffic, stop lights, stop signs. It happens. You're clear, Danny. Are you fucking kidding me? <sighs> it fits but they're like, it fits too good. <laughs> You're clear. Uh, <sighs> only six even weeks after past, Deborah's murder, even I know. Even considering I'm like, guys, all of that, guys, I, just, mm-hmm.
0: I feel like it's a blatant like. It's not a blind eye. It's I see
1: it, but I'm just gonna look the other way. You know it's, uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, only six weeks passed, and the murder case it had already gone cold. They had no leads. They had uh-huh. nothing, and every suspect they had cleared at this point,
0: so. It goes cold. Just like the smiley face thing.
1: Cold. Yeah. Same one. Same same thing. Now I will before we get into the next murder, I, I will give another trigger warning. There the child is not murdered in this case, but it's just very heartbreaking. How many more one. are there? Just I think this might be the last one. Might be the last one. Murder. Okay. So a few months later on October 31st, 1987, 36-year-old Mary Reisinger and her four-year-old daughter, Kristen, spend the evening at their local fall festival in Huntsville, Texas. Now, I know I keep saying a bunch of different like cities and towns and stuff in Texas. Just know that Texas is very big. It's very flat. And even though you have big cities, you have a lot of small cities around them. So... All of these cities are within like a 45-ish to an hour drive of like College Station and things like that. It's like a hub, basically. So Kristen, um, the four-year-old, had just finished a ballet performance. And so she decided that she wanted to stay in her white ballerina outfit as her Halloween costume to go to the fall festival. Cute. After they left the festival, the mom decided to pull into a like do-it-yourself car wash station at around 7.40 p.m. Now, around this same time, Officer Dalger had decided to check in at the police station after his family got done trick-or-treating. Just on check in, see how the night was going, was the quiet, anything crazy going on. As he's talking with a few of the officers, three women burst through the doors and yelled that there was a dead woman down the street at the car wash. Officer Dougler rushes out of the police station and he speeds over to the car wash. And when he arrives, he immediately sees Mary's lifeless body on the ground, covered in blood. When he got out of his truck and he approaches the car, he notices that there is a child inside jumping from door to door, locking them, trying to barricade herself inside the car. She was...
0: Oh my God.
1: Terrified. Officer Dogler knocks on the window and he tells Kristen that he was an officer and that he was there to help. He had to say this like multiple times before she would finally unlock the door. The moment she opened the door, she jumped into Officer Dogler's arms and gave him the biggest bear hug. He says, this is like the most touching moment when I saw him say this. He says that he, it's the biggest bear hug he'd ever had in his entire life. And still to this day, like he can feel that hug. And I'm like, rip my freaking heart out. Yeah. Now, while she is hugging him, she keeps saying, please don't let the bad man get me. Please don't let the bad man get me. He reassures her that everything is safe. And he looks down and he thinks that she's wearing a red ballerina outfit, only to quickly realize moments later that it was supposed to be white. She was covered in her fucking mother's blood. So her mother laid there outside the car, dead, stabbed to death, covered in blood. Oh my god! And that four-year-old literally was like, like probably shaking her mom, trying to get her mom up, <sighs> and got all, her mom's blood all all over her. Poor baby. There will be a picture on Instagram. It's not red; it's a black and white photo, um, but you can see. The How much blood was on yeah. her. Yeah, it is fucking heartbreaking. Now, he asked her where the bad man went and she pointed. He asked what kind of truck the bad man was driving and she told him that it was like his. Officer Dogler's truck was like a two-tone brown truck. Mm-hmm. So they immediately put out on the radio and a start, search started quickly. Thankfully, Kristen was not physically hurt. And over the next few days, they brought in a psychologist to talk to her. But of course, they were not able to get any more detail from her. Now, Ben Pruitt, he had heard of Mary's murder through the newspaper, and he was heartbroken. He knew the Risinger family. He'd actually like been very familiar with their family, was close to them, and like some of the members, and he knew who Mary was. So he was devastated. And when he saw the sketch of the truck in the newspaper, he thought of Danny, but then quickly brushed it off because he was like, oh, the windows in the sketch had bars on it and Danny's truck doesn't have bars on the windows. So like, it's not Danny, we're fine. Also, when Danny showed up to work that Monday, he had a fucking large cut on his hand and Ben asked him how he got it. And he was like, I cut it on a cocoa can. Cocoa can? What's up with this motherfucker and food with his excuses? Yeah, he cut it on a cocoa can opening it. Like he's trying to open okay, it. Okay then. hmm Interesting. Again, like all of the other cases, the police in this area are struggling to investigate. This is not something that they see regularly or even semi-regularly. It's out of their wheelhouse. I think the fact that there was a child in this case, it got way more media attention. I mean, it was all over the news. And there was a witness, like she was a witness to her mother's murder. So this kind of, sensationalized the murder. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I think that's like the yeah. best word I can put to it. Sensationalized it. And this brought all of that attention. What this did was it actually gave the police too many leads. People were calling in right and left, giving them leads. And back then, this was not categorized electronically or stored electronically. These were handwritten notes, like leads, And they were not stored properly. So a lot of leads went unnoticed time and time and time again. And this happened in this case. All right. Mary's family was sure that it was her ex-husband, but he was out of state hunting. And so he was quickly cleared. And just like the other cases, this again goes cold. They have no leads that actually point to a viable suspect. At least they don't think they do because every lead that they keep getting through the phones are leading up dry. So they have nothing. But later on, we do find out that someone had actually called in and said that Danny Lee Corwin had a truck just like the one in the sketch and he had a cut on his hand a few days after the murder. Red flag. But unfortunately, this was one of those leads that did not get investigated. Red flag. And also, we have no idea who called in that lead. Over the, this was in October. So now we're going into the holiday season. Over the holidays of that year, um, of 1980, was it? No, 1987. Yeah, 1987. Um, Becky ends up breaking up with Danny. And for Danny, life, for some reason, was quiet for a while. At least that's what we know. Danny's life is quiet. Okay. That's what I'll say. He did end up getting a speeding ticket from Officer Larry Martin, which was one of Alice Martin's grandsons. Mm-hmm. So the lady with the card smiley in her back. Um, he didn't pay the speeding ticket. Why he's not paying himself? I don't fucking know. He's an idiot. But due to them not paying this ticket, he was issued an arrest warrant and he was arrested on September 29th, 1988. He was actually arrested by Larry Martin ironically. Oh my God. Uh-huh. Danny was taken into custody, fingerprinted, photographed, and then he was bonded out a little bit later. Like I even think he was in jail for like 24 hours. Three weeks, three weeks after Danny's arrest, on October 29th of 1988, a woman named Wendy Gaunt was getting into her car at A&M. After she got in, she reached for her sunglasses in the floor of the passenger seat, only to find Danny... In her doorway, when she leaned back up, he's so creepy. He's so why does does this sound familiar? Just just a little bit. He was holding a knife and demanding her to scoot over. This is the same story. It don't just wait. This is insane. Immediately, Wendy tried to escape out the passenger door, but Danny was too quick, and he jumped in, pulled Wendy back in, and before she knew it, she was somehow tied, her arms were tied to the seatbelt of the vehicle. What? I don't fucking know how. He, she didn't even know how he did this. Like She's like, it happened in a blink of an eye. Wendy is freaking out and starts trying to talk to Danny by asking him where they were going, what his plan was, and so on. She's just asking question after question. But every time that she would ask the question or try to talk, Danny would start yelling at her and telling her to, throw to shut up, or he'd cut her throat. Oh, God. So she stops talking. Out of fear, which I would too. He drove her to a gravel parking lot that was under construction in a park area. He cuts her free from the seatbelt, but with his arms still tied and pulls her out of the vehicle. Out of fear, Wendy stopped talking. Danny drove her to a parking lot, a gravel parking lot that was under construction and at a park area. He cuts her free from the seatbelt, but with his, her arms still tied and pulls her out of the vehicle. He then takes her down a pathway and pushes her into some bushes. He then oh. cuts her clothes off and starts raping her. While he's raping her, he notices that he can see the tops of trucks driving by. So he stops and pushes her deeper into the wooded area and continues to rape her. After he finishes, he ties her to a tree, but notices that she's loosening the ropes around her hands. So he came up behind her, puts the knife against her throat, and with one big cut, slit her throat. (gasps) Immediately she drops to the ground and grabs her throat. So she had like loosened her hands enough to cut her throat. Okay. Blood is pouring everywhere. She can see Danny out of the corner of her eye and she knew that again, (sighs) he's not gonna leave if he thinks that she's alive. So just like Brenda, she pretends to be dead. Danny stood there watching her bleed out before he eventually walked away. Now, she's thinking that she's going to die, but she decided that if she was going to die, that she wanted to die closer to the road so that it would be easier for somebody to find her body. Yeah. So she gets up and walks towards the road, but when she gets closer, she sees Danny sitting in her car just waiting. She ends up hiding behind some bushes and just starts praying that he leaves. He eventually does, thank God, and she staggers out of the woods and collapses at the entrance of the park. It didn't... Take long. I think it was a park employee that actually found her oh my God. and called for her help. And she was rushed to the hospital and put under emergency surgery. That same day, Ben Pruitt noticed that Danny was 30 minutes late to work. He was never late. And not only that, he actually showed up to work wearing nice clothes. Like Ben said, he was ready to go out on the town, not build cabinets, which is like a messy construction type job. Why are you coming in fancy clothes? That's weird. Yeah. And it was odd and Ben made note of it. When Wendy got out of surgery, she couldn't talk because he, the wound in her neck was so deep. Yeah. But she demanded something to ride on. The first thing she wrote down was, quote, someone feed my horse. I mean, <laughs> she was very worried. Priorities. She was very worried about her horse. Priorities. Which I was like, that's so cute. And then the next was, get me a sketch artist. Oh, that's good. Now, at this time, Karen Taylor was the only sketch artist around and she was working out of Austin. After pleading with her boss, he finally agreed to let her go to College Station. But since Wendy couldn't talk, he didn't have high hopes that they would be able to come out with any kind of sketch. But she, she, she Karen advocated and was like, let, let me do this. Let me do this. So he let her go. Now, when Karen showed up at the hospital, she spent hours with Wendy coming up with a sketch. And it took longer than normal because Wendy couldn't talk, so they were having to write everything down and go back and forth. But she was able to remember so many details of her attacker. After the sketch was finished, it was sent to the news and blasted over every single news station. Within one hour, one hour of it being on the news, they got their first lead a prison guard from the prison where Danny was formerly incarcerated at called and identified the sketch as Danny Lee Corwin. Finally, finally. Through some digging, investigators found out that Danny worked for Ben Pruitt, so they decided to call Ben, not Danny. At first, Ben wasn't surprised. They're suspecting a formerly incarcerated person, an ex-con, you know, that's how they always do it. And Ben's like, no... You know, he does have some past convictions, tell some about him, and the guys are like, dude, this sounds just like his first attack. Like, come on. Ben says that, you know, there's no way, but they're like, hey, can you just come down and look at the sketch? Just come down to the station, take a look at it, just tell us what you think. He said the moment he laid his eyes on that sketch, he knew it was Danny. It was spot on for Danny Corwin. Wendy was able to remember every single detail about, ben's uh uh, danny's face and we will put a comparison on instagram so you can go and look at it as ben is talking with the officers he remembers the cut on danny's hand the monday after mary reisinger's murder and he tells the cops about that too so now danny is a suspect in mary reisinger's murder as well but they're really focusing on wendy's attempted murder and rape right now now they need more evidence. So they take the picture from when Danny was arrested for not paying the speeding ticket and they did a lineup for Wendy to pick out her attacker. She identified Danny, but she said that it wasn't 100%. And so this meant that police needed to keep digging because like it wasn't enough evidence to get a slam dunk kind of case. And they were really looking for that slam dunk. They did find her abandoned car not long after she was taken to the hospital and they had already searched it, but came up dry. So in a last-ditch effort, they're like, let's search it again. They search it, and they end up finding a fingerprint on the the steering wheel. And so they try to get Danny's arrest record fingerprints, but Danny was wearing fucking Band-Aids on his fingers from having cuts. So they couldn't compare those fingerprints. So then they had to call the prison that he used to be incarcerated at and ask for his fingerprints that were on file. And they're like, yeah, we'll get them to you. It'll take a few days because we have to send him in the mail. This is the 70s. They can't just email it over. So they put Danny under surveillance for the time until they get the fingerprints back. On October 28th, 1988, they got the call. Danny's fingerprints had came in and it was a positive match. This meant that they now have the evidence they need to arrest Danny, but they weren't sure if Danny would come quietly. So they came up with a plan to arrest him. They wanted to arrest him at his house and they wanted to make sure that he was outside of his home, not inside because they weren't sure if he had guns and things like that. So they decide to take a car from the impound lot and the cops staged a little like fender bender type thing with his car and the car they took from the impound lot. And they poured some alcohol on themselves to make it smell like they were drunk. They drive into Danny's up to Danny's house. They drive into his driveway and kind of bump his truck enough to like make some noise. Now they get out of the cars and they go up to the front porch, but the Danny doesn't come outside. I think the screen door was closed, but the main door was open. So the guys start saying, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. We hit your truck. I, I don't think there's any damage. I'm so sorry. And Danny from inside yells, it's okay. It's all right. No problem. But the officers are wanting him to come outside. So they're like, no, 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 we need you to come out and look. Like, we don't want you to call on the cops after we leave. So, like, please come out. So Danny's like, okay. So he gets up out of his chair. He stepped out onto the porch. And the moment he gets on the porch, he's put under arrest. And one officer says, sheriff's office, motherfucker. So they're pretty excited that they caught him. Now, Danny went in quietly and he pled guilty for the attack on Wendy. He was then sentenced to 99 years in prison. But was also suspected in the deaths of Alice, Mary, and Deborah, but he was not confessing to them. In prison, he was interviewed by one of the like people like does the like intake interviews and he started questioning him about, um, Alice and Mary and Deborah's murders. And through those interviews, he was able to get a somewhat of a confession, but they wanted more details. And so one officer took him or a couple officers took him for a drive along to all the sites of the three murders to try to see if it would jog anything. And it did. And he would say a few things, but then like stop talking. When they got back from the drive along, he did write out a confession for the three murders, but it was a very bare bones, like I, Danny Lee Corwin, murdered Deborah Ewing on such and such date by raping and, and stabbing her or, or strangling her. It was not, there was not much reason. There was not much detail. Um, and so he was sentenced for, or tried for all three of those murders. And this was the first time that somebody in Texas was tried for all of their murders at one time. There was a new law that serial killers could be tried for all of their murders at one time. And Danny Lee Corwin was the first in Texas. Some people did testify on his behalf to try and spare him the death penalty, uh, which was his mom and his sister, I'm not shocked. They said that uh, he hit his head as a kid and even got hit in the head with a croquet mallet. And so like, that's why he's all fucked up the way he is. I I think their, their intention was just trying to give a reason so that Danny would not be sentenced to death. Uh, it didn't work. Danny was sentenced to death in 1990 And he was put to death on December seventh, nineteen ninety eight. And his last meal was steak, potatoes, and a root beer. I hate that meal now. I know, right? Steak, potatoes, and root (laughs) beer. And I love root beer. God, that that is the case of Danny Lee Corwin. Um, Um, I will say that after he was arrested and it was found out that he murdered more and more people. Uh, the pastor, Pastor Keenan, ended up going to the prosecutor's home and while he was like doing yard work outside and actually apologized and said, I shouldn't have ever said that stuff about Brenda. I should never have defended Danny. And a little too, little too late because his defense of Danny is what got Brenda to not testify and made them start searching for a plea deal. So if he would have just shut his damn mouth, they would have been fine. And he would have gotten life in prison.
0: What a disservice! Yeah. I have a palate cleanser, if you want.
1: What is your palate cleanser?
0: My palate cleanser is
1: palate cleanser. <gasps> Damn <it>. My son <laughs> The good
0: news. Okay, the good news. Researchers have discovered a new type of fast and furious cosmic explosion, and they named it after the Liverpool soccer team. That was on September 11th of 2023. So what is what is a cosmic explosion? I have no idea. I'm assuming it's like a, I think like a asteroids
1: something yeah, I I was thinking, hitting yes, like something like each other.
0: Oh my Maybe? gosh, something like That's that. Crazy. Space matter hitting each
1: other. That's what it seems Space like. matter exploding. I have no idea. My My palette cleanser is my husband said today that he has come up with a new rule, and that is for any holiday that we like to decorate every year, we have to buy two at least two new decorations to go to our collection. Oh, I was like, you are giving me permission to spend money on Halloween and Christmas decorations, and I love that. I was gonna say, I don't think he knows what he's done. (laughs) Oh, he does, he's into decorating as much as I am, and if not more. And so, I was like, Yes. That's awesome. So I'm cool. really excited to like build our decorations. Yes. For especially Halloween. I like fucking love Halloween. Hell yeah. The best. Hell yeah. Well, yeah, that's the case of Danny Lee Corwin. Next week we will see you guys and Lola will be presenting her own little case for you all. So we will see you guys then. Bye. Bye. Also,
0: heathens, if you're enjoying the show so far, please remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on and remember to bring your sacrifice to the blood ritual. Just kidding. A review will suffice. Deadly Faith is brought to you by Choircast Network. It's produced by Lacey Bean and Lola Robbins and audio engineered by Eric Cowell. Thanks for listening.